Hello and welcome to this special live recording of Backlisted from the Woodstock Poetry Festival in Oxfordshire. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And we're here to discuss the remarkable long poem Brig Flats, first published in 1966 by the Northumbrian poet Basil Bunting. And today, here in this beautiful church in Woodstock, where a full congregation has joined us to worship Basil Bunting in a, in a way. How many people here have read Brig Flats? Everybody. That is incredible. <laughs> well, it's a truly remarkable piece of work. And the thought of what I know you're about to hear in a moment, which is the author reading, that in and of itself is going to be a very special moment. So and we're joined today by two guests. Please welcome Neil Astley and Kirsten Norrie, who writes and performs under her Highland name, McGillivray. Welcome. Neil Astley is the editor of the poetry publishing house Blood Act Books, which he founded in 1978 in Newcastle, which he then moved out into Northumberland in the mid-1990s, as well as editing over a thousand poetry collections published by a thousand. That's extraordinary. Over a thousand. Do you know how many exactly? Fifteen hundred. Well, fifteen hundred. No, over a thousand. Just under two thousand. I bumped that up. Uh, published by Blood Axe, he also edited the popular Staying Alive series of anthologies and has published two poetry collections and two novels of his own, one of which, The Sheep Who Changed the World, was shortlisted for the Whitbread First Novel Award. One of Blood Axe's very first publications in 1980 was an LP record of Basil Bunting reading Brick Flats, and the extracts we are playing in this podcast are from that recording. For many years, Neil was the only person, apart from her family, who knew what had happened to the poet and novelist Rosemary Tonks. Now, um, we on Backlisted made an episode about uh, Rosemary Tonks' remarkable um, poetry and her um, very peculiar but wonderful novel, The Bloater, two, three years ago, I think that was. Anyway, Tonks famously disowned all her published work and uh, disappeared in the late 1970s. Neil was able to publish Bedouin of the London Evening, her collected poems with Blood Axe in 2014, which was followed by two mentions on our show about her poetry and fiction, and those led directly to her novels being reissued by Vintage in the UK and New Directions in the US, with Stuart Lee, who had enthused about her work on Backlisted, writing the introduction to the first one to be re-released in this country, The Bloater. Neil, how has it been? I know Backlisted listeners will want to know how it has been seeing Rosemary Tonks return to the world against her will. Well, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, fortunately, it was with her family's backing because her family, along with many, many readers who knew her work, greatly regretted the fact that um, she'd basically completely changed into a, another person, another personality under the influence of uh, extreme Christian fundamentalism. So she, in a sense, wasn't the person that wrote those books. And yet everyone loved those books and they wanted them to be available again. And she's now much more widely read than, I think, as a poet than she was in, in her lifetime. Yes, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's, it's in, in fascinating to see. I know when I read, as I remember saying to you, John, when I read the poetry in Bedouin of the London Evening, that it was, it's what I look for in poetry. Uh, I understood half the poems 
and the half I didn't understand, I absolutely loved. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more of that later. More of that later. McGillivray is the Highland name of writer and artist Kirsten Norrie. She has published four books of poetry, including The Last Wolf of Scotland, published by Pig Hog Red Hen in 2013, and Ravage, An Astonishment of Fire, just published by Blood Axe Books. Indeed, launched tonight in this very church. Forthcoming books include non-fiction work Scottish Lost Boys, 10 Renegade Essays, a pamphlet The Demon Trapped, and a novel An American Book of the Dead, all out with Broken Sleep books in 2024 to 5. Winner of a Paul Hamlin Composer Award, her music has appeared on the BBC for film soundtracks including The Whalebone Box, Swan Down and By Ourselves, 2015 film by British director Andrew Cotting in which she appeared in a cameo opposite Toby Jones. She has also performed internationally with the what now? With the fall? <laughs> performed internationally. I performed once in the O2 Academy in with, Islington. With the fall? Yeah, we went to the wrong green room. <laughs> Are you a previously unknown member of the group? No. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll uh, never mind. This is big news on Backlist. This is big news on Backlist, <laughs> though. The, the fall come up with, with um, regularity, let's just call it that. Well, it says here you've performed internationally with The Fall, and I'd just go with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Arlo Guthrie, Arthur Brown, Shirley Collins, Michael Moorcock, Vic Goddard, Toby Jones, Alan Moore, Jem Finer, Curran 93, Gallon Drunk, and you survived, Ian Sinclair, <laughs> Trembling Bells, The Incredible String Band, Thurston Moore, and Band of Susans. Good Lord. <laughs> Bunting will be nothing after that. Good God. In 2017, she recorded Sitting Bull's great-grandson reading from The Last Wolf of Scotland. Extraordinary. She has created 10 albums working with long-term producer James Young, who performed and recorded with Nico for the last decade of her life, of course, and wrote the book Nico, Songs They Never Play on the Radio, about this experience a book featured on another podcast as a particular favourite of me, Andy Miller. Yeah. That is one of the great, sad, hilarious books about what it takes to be an artist, let alone a musician. So please welcome both our guests. We're going to start the evening with an excerpt of Bunting reading from the beginning of Brig Flats with the kind permission of the Bunting Estate. This is important because sound, the sound of poetry, was of supreme importance to Bunting. Indeed, he wrote that poetry lies dead on the page until some voice brings it to life. Brig Flats, an autobiography. Son los pasarellos del mal pelo eschidos. The spuggies are fledged. Brag, sweet tenor bull, descanton rothes madrigal, each pebble its part for the fell's late spring. Dance, tiptoe bull, black against May, ridiculous and lovely. Chase hurtling shadows morning into noon. May on the bull's hide and through the dale furrows 
fill with May, paving the slow worm's way. A mason times his mallet to a lark's twitter, listening while the marble rests, lays his rule at a letter's edge, fingertips checking, till the stone spells a name, naming none, a man abolished. Painful lark laboring to rise, the solemn mallet says, in the grave's slot he lies, we rot. Decay thrusts the blade, wheat stands in excrement, trembling, rothy trembles, tongue stumbles, ears err for fear of spring. Rub the stone with sand, wet sandstone, rending roughness away, fingers ache on the rubbing stone. The mason says, rocks happen by chance. No one here bolts the door. Love is so sore. Stone, smooth as skin, cold as the dead, they load on a low lorry by night. The moon sits on the fell, but it will rain. Under sacks on the stone, two children lie. Hear the horse stale, the mason whistle, harness mutter to shaft, fellow to axle squeak, rot thundering, crushed grit. Stocking to stocking, Jersey to Jersey, head to a hard arm, they kiss under the rain, bruised by their marble bed. In Garsdale, dawn. At Hawes, tea from the can. Rain stops, sacks steam in the sun, they sit up, Copper wire moustache, sea reflecting eyes, and Baltic plain song speech declare by such rocks men killed blood axe. Uh, the reading is taken from the Book of Brick Flats, chapter one. What's an extraordinary thing to hear the sound of him turning the pages? When did you say that? When was that recorded, Neil? That was for a 1977 recording in Carlisle, organised by Tom Pickard with Aiden Vision Studios. And I was at that recording. It was so it was in a studio? No, it was in a, in a studio with a live audience. Yeah, okay. And, and so that was recorded 10, 11 years after the poem was first published. That's right. To get it on the record. Yes, yeah, there's, there's a previous recording which is available from 1966. Yeah. That was recorded by Stuart Montgomery at, right. at his house in London, um, which is also available. Oh, there, there, is, there is actually an e-book with audio of Brig Flats, 
uh, published by Blood Axe, where you get both recordings available. You like to make it easy for yourself, hey? <laughs> Just putting on a slim volume of folks. Did, did you know that you were going to release it as a record when you recorded it? I, I didn't record it. So I, I, I released it as a record. Yeah. Uh, in well, well, I founded Blood Axe in 1978. So. so, and I'd been at that recording, and so it was very much in my mind that I would would like to make that available. Well, listen, let me ask you what we always ask. Um, McGillivray, I'm going to ask you first. Where were you when you first heard or read or became aware of Basil Bunting? I have a, a shortish story about this. I was in Edinburgh. I was very poor. I was working in the old town bookshop, which was on Victoria Street as you went down into the grass market. And it was a medieval granary store, so it was like a ship's galley. Worked there two days a week, and I got my thirty quid for each day. And um, it was winter, so the shifts went down to one day. So instead of sixty, I had my thirty. And uh, I was living with my mother in her studio. She's painting, so sort of sleeping under canvases. We didn't have a shower, so we we used to strip wash. And um, <laughs> we we were it's really, all very wanting. Really... <laughs> and. Um, the SPL emailed me. They said, look, we want to put from the first collection, we want to uh, make your poem, Poem of the Week in the Scots. I'm so fantastic. But I didn't have any money to celebrate. I think I had three quid. And I went out walking. I went up the road into Newington and um, there was a charity shop that was closing down. I was closing as I went, but it was actually shutting down that night. And I found a sort of, I think it was a man's coat, it was a tweed coat. And it was three quid. And I thought, well, will I get the Scotsman or will I get the coat? And I thought, no, I'll I'll get the coat, be sensible. So I got the coat, walked on up the road, really cold now, put my hand in the pocket and there was a ring and it was heavy. And I thought, oh, oh no, I know what this is. It was a wedding band. So I thought, well, I've got to go back. And then, of course, the whole thing was not only closed, but shut down. So I took it to a pawn shop and I got 30 quid for it. So I thought, oh, this is fantastic. Now I can celebrate. And I went up to Black Quilts on the bridges, which was, um, you know, open late. And I walked in and I got my copy of The Scotsman and I, I thought I'd go to the poetry section. Of course, I wasn't published by Blood Axton. And, and, and there was a sort of aura around this one book. It was the Blood Axe edition of Brick Flats. And I had resonant frequency. I thought, oh, this is it. I, I, I took it, paid for it. And then I went over to Sandy Bell's, which is a great pub where um, Hamish Henderson used to drink. It's great folk music. And I sat in the corner with a whiskey and, and um, brick flats, the Scotsman with my own, you know. And it, it enthralled me for about an hour and the, the light was fading. I had to go home. And uh, I turned to get my things. And they, I don't know if they still have them, but they used to have bookshelves in there. And along with Ian Rankin and, um, I don't know, Diana Gabaldon or something, was my first collection sitting on the shelf in Sandy Bells. And... Uh, so there was this strange sort of genesis for me. He was um, a really strong imprint. And um, yeah, that meant a great deal to me because that was the first time I've been either published as a poet or properly published, you know, in a Scotsman. That was a big deal. And, and um, yeah, ever after, he became one of the greats. Basil was there to help you celebrate. <laughs> were, you, were you immediately gripped by Brick Flats? Yeah. I had a sonic landscape alone but the spiritual landscape in it and the sense of excavation. Okay, we're going to come back to this topic. Neil, let me ask you a version of the same question. Obviously, given we heard 
Basil Bunting pronounced the name. Blood axe there. Bunting has meant a lot to your life and your career. Can you remember when you first encountered this poem? Yes. Um, after leaving school, I worked as a journalist for four years. I ended up in Australia working on the Lawn Territory News in Darwin, um, which was destroyed by a cyclone on Christmas Eve uh, 1974. Uh, I headed back to England, having been sort of got out of the house, which had been flattened by the cyclone, decided I was going to go to university, applied for various universities, ended up choosing Newcastle, but I couldn't start until um, October of that year. So I got a job on the buses. I was bus conductor on Northern buses. And I finally decided to jack it in because I still had a month or so before I started and I decided to have a break. And just when I was finishing as a bus conductor, wearing my bus conductor's uniform, um, I walked past a Theatre Royal in Newcastle where the poet John Silken was selling copies of his magazine stand. He'd just been to Australia. We got talking. He discovered that I'd been in newspaper production. He needed a production editor. So he offered me part-time job as his production editor, which I would do while I was at university. The following week, I was in his house working on his magazine. Uh, amongst the back issues was a special issue from 1966 on the poetry of Northeast England, in which Basil Bunting featured prominently. And it was also um, a very interesting uh, analysis of, of Brig Flats, one of the early essays on it by Robert Wolfe, who would end up being one of my tutors at university, and I would end up starting Blood Axe in Robert Wolfe's office in the university after I'd finished uh, my degree. Um, and then I immediately was interested in getting hold of uh, Brig Flats. Uh, John Silken had a copy, which I read, and I went into, into the Thorns bookshop in Newcastle and got a copy there. So that was my first um, encounter. And then, of course, I got to hear and read because I started going to Morton Tower readings, the medieval yeah. turret room on Newcastle city walls, where he first read Brig Flats in uh, December 1965. And uh, there are further things I could talk about that, but that's probably best short answer to that question. John, John <laughs> can, can you better either of those first encounters with Basil Bunting? I really can't. I, I, mine was in... Um, Mine was when I was a student in Oxford. Like a lot of people, I was kind of I'd heard, I'd heard rumours because I'm originally from the northeast, and I'd heard rumours of this great Northumbrian poet who was friend of Poland and Zukowski and Yeats, and uh, went and got a copy of Brig Brig Flats out of the college library, not dissimilar to you, but, but this exactly this time of year, my first first term of first year, and this, uh, I was in, sitting in Merton Library with the sun going down over the over the um over the meadows and yeah i i couldn't couldn't believe it didn't of course like everybody got the understanding of the 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 work it doesn't it doesn't reach out and leak much right but the words and the music and the intensity of it was quite unlike anything else mm. i'd read and and then yeah i suppose from from then on we became curious uh and there's plenty to, there's plenty to find out about bunting i think that's well uh, we're going to play a clip now from a documentary that was broadcast on um, BBC last year, to which you contributed, Neil, um, presented by the former MP um, and now podcast host, Rory Stewart, 
tracing Basil Bunting's life and career um, in Northumbria and speaking to people who knew Bunting or only know of him via his work. And the clip we're about to hear fall into the latter category. So let's, let's hear that now. It was written by Bunting when he was close to retirement as a junior sub-editor on a regional newspaper. This was a dead-end job he hated, but it paid for his large, comfortable house in a Newcastle commuter village, a house now owned by Vina and Rajendra Duggle. Hello, nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So this is Basil Bunting's house. When we first moved in, we were aware of Basil Bunting being, yeah. uh, you know, having lived here. So we we bought, I think we bought his poems first. I didn't understand it at all. Let you people know what Basil Bunting His poetry is quite difficult, as you said. Yeah. I asked you, Aguila Bray, if it grabbed you straight away, because I'm going to be, I'm going to be, along with that lady, the voice of the public, my first encounter with Brick Flats was in my bedroom at home. Nothing extraordinary happened. I read it and I thought, I don't understand that at all. I must ask John Mitchinson, which I did. And then I went back. He was very helpful. I went back to it and I tried it again. We heard Basil Bunting reading. Neil, I'd like to ask you first and then, and then my other panel guests. Is Bunting better read or heard? Brig flats. Let me say brig flats. Or better read, read aloud, certainly. Yeah. Read aloud, why, yeah. why better read aloud? Well, because you, the poetry, the, the, as he says, the meaning is in the sound. Um, the work is so mellifluous and there's so much going on in terms of what he does with sound. Um, and also when you hear him read, you get the Northumbrian R's, you get his, his pronunciation, um, you get the narrative flow of it better read aloud than you do on the page. When you hear it read aloud, uh, particularly by him, it makes a lot more sense, even if you're not looking for sense because of the narrative flow. I mean, he really didn't care that whether it, it made sense. He says, there's a great essay from 66. He says, reading in silence is the source of half the misconceptions that have caused the public to distrust poetry. Without the sound, the reader looks at the lines as he looks at prose seeking a meaning. Prose exists to convey meaning and no meaning such as prose conveys can be expressed as well in poetry. That's not poetry's business. Poetry is seeking to make not meaning but beauty, or if you insist on misusing words, its meaning is of another kind and lies in the relation to one another of lines and patterns of sound, perhaps harmonious, perhaps contrasting and clashing, which the hearer feels rather than understands. So I think it's almost like his, his whole aesthetic is about the, the, it's the, it's, it's musical. I think he talks somewhere about the architecture of architecture of feeling or architecture of a that's as important as the architecture of form but that's also he's in that he saw himself and was perceived as being in a modernist tradition right that we where we might think of say joyce the joyce of finnegan's wake where there is a very musical you know it's yeah. heard as much as read and i wondered whether when you when you first read it i mean don't don't take this too literally but did you think 
this this would make a what an excellent script this would be. This needs to be heard. Because I think somebody like Alan Lomax would have loved, you know, in his Highland adventures across, if he'd come across uh, bunting in the flesh, I think that would have appealed to him enormously because he was so entrenched. It didn't strike me immediately as that because of the visual, the, the tremendous cover. And there's that paradox, isn't there, where he's so insistent on the oral and yet you have this fundamentally visual pattern running throughout so that the images that are emerging are inevitably sonic but there is that duality he doesn't I, I wonder how much he plays with us in terms of his insistence on, on the sonic I, I, it strikes me that there is a part of his any great artist or any poet or anyone who has the forming bones that it becomes the two things become linked together because if I remember right, Neil Brigflax was first published, wasn't it? It wasn't first heard; it was published in Poetry Review. Is that it was right? published in an American journal called Poetry? Yeah. Poetry. It's the beginning of 1966. But Bunting had given the first right. reading, had it at yeah. Grand Tower a month or so before. And could you just say a bit about those readings and that and that venue because that's such a part of the creation myth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Morton, Morton Tower isn't now used as a reading venue, but when it was, in the early days, they, they had gaslight. Uh, they didn't have any chairs. Uh, by the time I got there and started going there, they had chairs. It's an octagonal space, and the sound of listening to poetry in there is quite extraordinary. So Bunting's voice was, was perfect for that. And in those early days, he was reading to basically crowds of young people on the whole. Uh, he talks about them as being students and beats and sort of a whole mixture of people. And they weren't academics. And, you know, he liked that in particular. And it became a, a mecca, didn't it? I mean, we're going to hear a clip in a minute, moment from Alan Ginsberg, but Ginsberg, Ferlinghetti, uh, Creeley, a, a lot of the great experimental beat poets of the 1960s made a made a kind of beeline to, to Morton So you, you mentioned Alan Lomax, the folk song collector, amongst other achievements. And I wonder, therefore, does, does Bunting overlap what, what we would think of as some kind of 60s counterculture and uh, a revisiting of um, the folk tradition, which would blossom in the few years after that, in the late 60s and early 70s? You know, if you saw Bunting read... What what were the audiences like? Were they young audiences in that in that era? Yes, I mean I first heard him read in I think it was nineteen seventy five, and then I heard him in seventy seven, um, and then a couple of years later as well. Um, by that stage, Newcastle had become a real mecca for poetry. A lot of poetry magazines were based there, poetry presses, uh, a real buzzed to things. It had shifted from the 60s, which was largely based around the Beats and the Liverpool poets and so on. And um, it had become much wider range of poets reading at the Tower and, and other venues. It wasn't as young an audience, I don't think, but by the time he was giving those later readings when I was there. Neil edited, a, I think, a completely brilliant anthology of people who are interested in poetry of the Northeast Coil, yeah. Land of Three, Three Rivers. Bloodock's published, but um, a lot of poets in there, some of whom are well known, some of which are. But it's, it's. I mean, you'll you'll be right. That period, I mean, from the late sixties through into the seventies and beyond, astonishing. 
Why don't we hear Allen Ginsberg yeah. say a little bit about Basil Bunce? He has a verse describing uh, a cart rolling through countryside on an old road, and the entire landscape and the nature of the cart and the nature of the road are described in four or five words. What a fellow mutters to Axel, rut thuds the rim. And it was that rut thuds the rim that really blew my mind because it's these four white Anglo-Saxon words, rut thuds the rim, you get a picture of the road, the rut. The rim gives you the, the, uh, the cart, the nature of the cart and the wheels of the cart. Uh, thuds uh, gives you the whole physical jar and motion of the cart going through ruts in a country road. What I meant by Hinkastonic, rut thuds the rim. There's four uh, words, three of which are very heavy, solid vowels, rut thuds rim. And in that, you get a picture of the whole landscape. So that's how I understood his notion of condensation. And, and I use that line in teaching still, because it's so obvious and, and so jarring in a sense. Okay. So we've heard Ginsberg describe the poem. We've heard um, Bunting read from the poem. We've heard some members of the public be baffled by the poem. So the next thing I'm going to ask all three of you is, and I'll start with John to give our guests time to think. You have, I'll give you two sentences. Two. What is Brig Flats about? What is Brig Flats about? It is about a man. Um, I think it's a man summing up, making sense of his life using perhaps the most obvious structure, the structure of the seasons, four seasons, and it's him making account of where he's ended up as a 66-year-old man looking back on and a particular, particular moment, perhaps, when he was a child, uh, a young man. It was one sentence, a long one, but a golden one. Thank you very much. Kirsten. I think it's a headstone. Oh, well, that's good. Yes. <laughs> Are you, do, do you wish to, oh, yeah, do you wish to add or subtract? Well, I was, I was rereading it, obviously, again for this and I was thinking about the excavation of stone and it's it's really lithic you know and he had such profound friendship or kinship with McDermott there's a sort of stoniness in in um well I mean some of McDermott's stoniness is much earlier but still it persists there's this relationship to the land there's a relationship to the excavation of his life there's the stone cutter's daughter the great love of his life there's the stoniness in the heart when you read about his time as a conscientious objector in his own words, however embellished, I mean, you know, it's brutal. They put them into uh, naked into a dark room with no food, no no drink, nothing to sleep on. And if you survived three days and came out compass mantis, they put you in again, you know, and they repeat it until they break your spirit. So he he did his desert time, I think, early on. So the whole thing, I mean, I could go. That's more no. than a sentence. No. No. <laughs> you provided a footnote to this is a headstone. So, <laughs> so thank you. Neil. Well, he would say it, it is a sonata. It's the culmination of a life. It's um, a life story told through the music of poetry. I mean, that comment of Allen Ginsberg's about that line about the rut. As a poet, his work was so concise and so pared down 
And that's part of the, the magic of the sound of the work is that it is so compressed. And that's why, in a sense, if you're just reading it on the page at first, you know, there are difficulties in actually working out what's going on there. But if you read it aloud, it makes much more sense. Listening is one thing, but reading it aloud actually gives you the, a, a lot of the clues. There is a kind of a narrative in there. So it's not just the seasons. There is the middle yeah. passage. Yeah. That uh, mm -hmm. line at the beginning, son las pasarelios del mar elo exidos, which is medieval Spanish from the book of Alexander. And he, he translates that into Northumbrian. The spoggies, the sparrows are fledged. And it's, it's all about Alexander goes to the mountain to meet the Israfel, the angel of judgment, who is about to cast the world into darkness. And suddenly he doesn't. And Alexander finds himself on the ground after the experience of going up to the mountain. And then he takes all his men back to Macedonia. So, so there's a sort of little story going on in the middle of the sonata, that middle section. But it is like a Dante-esque hell in the middle of the seasonal structure of the poem. But also structurally, we mentioned the Lindisfarne on the cover of the book. I mean, the Lindisfarne Gospels, the interlacing latticework of the Gospels is in a sense one of the structural methods of the poetry. There's so many themes that interweave and so many sounds you get, so many images mm. that weave through throughout. Yes. And, and also where you called it a sonata, it's not just the structure, it's also the way in which in the sonata, all the sounds sort of, you know, things are recalled, things, things come back and so on. So there are two areas of structure that he has in mind in, in the writing of the poem. That you don't necessarily aware of it when you're reading it or hearing it, but that's part of the, um, the brilliance, I think, it's is the construction of it. Yes. I want to bring us back to hearing the poem from time to time. So... Is there a section you could read for us now? I would actually quite like to read the opening three stanzas, partly because I understand he wrote the bull in last. Is that right? I think this was his last line, which became his verse, which gives it the sort of Persian, as a, almost a Sufi circuit. There, there are lots of circularities in this. There's a filigree sensation as well. And I was reading about, uh, there's a wonderful book written by Ivan Illich in the Vineyard of the Text. And he discusses the monastic um, tradition through Hugh of Didascalian, um, really about the bull and the sweetness of words, chewing the cud. The monks would really savour the honey of, of the biblical uh, passages that they were reading. So um, if I can, if I just... Briefly outline. So they, they talk about um, a desirable treasure resting in the mouth of the wise, you know, and the notion of um, a monk in his monastery is like the Samaritan's beast in the stable, hay's given to one in his stall. You know, they're chewing on the sweetness of the words, the cud. And there's this whole sensation, really, of the bull, although he's dancing, perhaps his audience is of these, these, uh, cows chewing on the sweetness of, of this rather mm. monastic tract um, by bunting. There's this sensation of the land, but also something very deeply religious in there and considered and obviously sonic. Um, Brag, sweet tenor bull, descant on Rothy's madrigal. Each pebble its part for the fell's late spring, 
dance tiptoe bull, black against May, ridiculous and lovely, chase hurdling shadows morning into noon, May on the bull's hide and through the dale, furrows fill with May, paving the slow worm's way. A mason times his mallet to a lark's twitter, listening while the marble rests, lays his rule at a letter's edge, fingertips checking, till the stone spells a name, naming none, a man abolished. Painful lark, laboring to rise, the solemn mallet says, in the grave slot he lies, we rot. Decay thrusts the blade. Wheat stands in excrement, trembling. Rawthy trembles. Tongue stumbles, ears err, for fear of spring. Rub the stone with sand, wet sandstone rending roughness away. The fingers ache on the rubbing stone. The mason says, rocks happen by chance. No one here bolts the door. Love is so sore. It's just devastating when you get the last line. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. We got a clip of Bunting talking about himself. It's him in a wonderful film by Peter Bell, uh, which was made in 1980, I think. And that, that film is actually available at the back it of the Blood Axe book. It is. Uh, it's in a big fat, so along with... Yeah. A 1966 audio record. It's brilliant. <laughs> and, and all at £12. <laughs> and so far the time, I was a poet. Not a very industrious one. Not at all an influential one. Unread and almost unheard of. Yet good enough in a small way to interest my friend whose names have gradually become familiar. Alan Tsukovsky first, Carlos Williams, Hugh McDermott, David Jones, Ness. Few indeed, uh, but enough to make me think my work was not wasted. Now they are all dead, and I am old. Much too old to say or write anything worth listening to. Bit by bit, childhood, youth, and middle age have become works of fiction, which I scarcely believe myself. Neither am I really convinced that the poems which bear my name are not the work of some other person, long vanished, whose passport and pension card I have somehow inherited. But with whom I have only a slight acquaintance. Basil Bunting, master of the humble brag, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> he, li- he knew how to drop a name there. But then he met a lot of very, very famous people in the course of his is 85 years on earth. And one of the things I want to say about Bunting is what's fascinating to me about Bunting is that the image that he projected in the from 1966 onwards, it would surprise 
people to learn what his uh, history had been up to that point. That he'd been a conscientious objector, as you say. He'd been privately educated, conscientious objector. He fights in the Second World War, doesn't he? He goes on to become the head of the... Well, it was a translator, and then he became... Um, well, eventually ended up as a squadron leader or wing commander yeah. because he was working for British intelligence. He wasn't actually doing any fighting as such. But um, he, he became... He became head of, Times Corris, the Times correspondent in Iran. That was after that, yeah. yeah. And, and then he became head of British intelligence in Tehran. And we have to mention this. He then married a much younger woman... Uh, a girl, in fact, and it's well worth digging into Bunting's biography because this is a complicated situation, not least because of how it might or might not manifest in Brig Flats itself, because part of Brig Flats is about a relationship, presumably a sexual relationship, between two very young people, right? Yes, yeah. So I feel we have to sound that note of warning in 2023. It is more complicated, perhaps today, than it would have appeared at the time, John. She was 14, and she gave birth to a, his, to a child when she was 15, and it cost him his job as the head of intelligence. He was sacked. And from everything that you can see, it was a huge crisis in his life, a, a turning point. There's a story about the protesters in Tehran asking for death to bunting outside and he got away by joining them and uh, as the sort of rabble were kind of asking bearing for his blood and then drove his uh, his wife and family out of the out of the country and came back to Britain and also he worked for as Ford Maddox Ford's secretary in Paris John which <laughs> meant that he knew Jean Rees yeah oh, yeah yeah yeah, he was very, he thought Hemingway's portrayal of Ford in um, Moonball Feast was unforgivable, really. He's a, extremely he, complicated. He, he has three links to Gene Reese. Would you like to know what Go they on. are? Go on. Okay, so they knew one another through Ford Maddox Ford when she was 28 and he was 18. They both enjoyed late flowering literary success Good. in the 1960s. Him with Brick Flats, her with Wide Sargasso Sea. And they shared an accountant, <laughs> Michael Henshaw. Oh, my God. Famous Michael Henshaw, who was accountant to all manner of drunken poets and writers. In other words, the portrait we're painting of Bunting could seem, Neil, to be at odds with this simple man of the rock and the soil that he was, I'm not even going to say pretending to be, but that's what had come to the fore by the time he, when he was writing Brick Flats, he was working at the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. And, and he was in the junior sub editor. He was a junior I mean, sub editor. Man who you know, was, the head of intelligence, British intelligence in Tehran. Yeah. You know who the Saturday boy was on that paper? <laughs> Mark Knopfler. Mark Knopfler. And Barry McSweeney, the poet, was also yeah. writing <laughs> on the paper. But Bunting was just doing a very humdrum job editing the shipping and the financial news. Neil, how do we square then this rich, multi-traveled life with the yeah. seemingly parochial poet? Well, I mean, Brick Flats is a, is a poem about the contradictions of the life. It's about trying to reconcile what the mistakes he's made in his life, the wrong, the wrong paths he's taken, because he ended up really until Brick Flats, he ended up in poverty. You know, he had, um, you know, 
mortgage man was was after him, the rent man was after him, or, or whatever. Um, Spectacular fall from from great. Yeah, but it was through brick flats that he suddenly had got grants given to him, got public attention given to him. Uh, very interestingly, but in a very short time, his earlier work was quickly made available again, so that people could then see who'd come to brick flats all the earlier work, and it was that earlier work that had been admired by. Pound and, and yes. so on in Paris and, and Italy in the 20s and 30s. Although people like Zukowski remained a correspondent with him throughout his life, people coming to Brickflats for the first time had no sense of the work which had won him so many admirers in the States. I mean, right. the whole story about how he came to write Brickflats was that Tom Pickard and Connie Pickard started Morden Tower. They were talking to the poet Jonathan Williams. And he told them that uh, Britain's greatest living poet <laughs> lived the, just up the road from then uh, in, in Wylam. Tom, Tom was 18. Tom yeah, was Tom was 18. And Tom went out to ask him for something for his magazine. Uh, and he ended up getting the script of The Spoils, which had been neglected for years. And Morden Tower then put that out. This was before Brickfats was published. That was a piece of work from that whole earlier period. But the American poets knew and respected his work long before Brigflats, but he'd become forgotten here. Mm. I mean, T.S. Eliot famously didn't get on with him and he yeah, turned him down. Turned him down and he said some very disparaging things about Eliot. So, so he got shut out of, of British publishing very quickly, but it was the Americans that kept his work going all, all those years. That's quite often the case, isn't it? Because I have a sort of brewing pet theory that there, there are a couple now, this bunting... And there's the great lost Scottish this Joseph MacLeod, who practically nobody's heard of. He was a BBC broadcaster. So in a way, he had his professional assistance. I like Buntings. And he was blocked. I mean, they published the ecliptic. But after that, Faber declined. You know, And that's the story here. You just wonder how much Eliot was nervous. He wanted to maintain his own coterie. But I mean, there are similarities, but yeah. in in some ways, between Brickflats and Four Quartets. What well, I've wondered that the that sense of the relationship at the core of Brickflats, we should ought to say something about the fact that Brickflats is a Quaker meeting house, mm. and it was Peggy who the poem is dedicated to. I think they met when he was eleven and she was eight, and they at some point when they were quite young had a, a relationship. And it's the going back to that relationship that is the kind of the frame of the poem, isn't it? Uh, and not everybody likes the way that he has dealt with that. I know uh, one of your fine poets, uh, Katrina Porteous, said it makes her feel uncomfortable, um, the relationship, because they were children, and he says they were children. People talk about him as being a Quaker poet, but his family weren't Quaker. No. It was the Greenbanks were the Quakers. That's where he got his introduction to Quakerism, and that his conscientious objection in the First World War was based on Quakerism. Yeah, there's a, there's a lovely thing that he says in his note on Brigflats, which he's quite grumpy about having to... He said, Brigflats is a poem, it needs no explanation. And then he goes on to give you one. The day's incidents hide our ignorance from us, yet we know it beneath our routine. In silence having swept dust and litter from our minds, we can detect the pulse of God's blood in our veins, more persuasive than words, more demonstrative than a diagram. 
That is what a Quaker meeting tries to be, and that is why my poem is called Brig Flats. Let the incidents and images take care of themselves. I would like to hear some more of the poem, because I think we need to keep coming back to the poem. So, um, Neil, do you have an extract to share with us? I've got two short extracts. And I think the first of these shows that there are parts of Brig Flats that are crystal clear to any reader. Yes. So this is from part five. Shepherds follow the links, sweet turf studded with thrift, fellborn men of precise instep, leading demure dogs from Tweed and Till and Tividale, with hair combed back from the muzzle, dogs from Reedsdale and Coquetdale, taught by Wilson or Telfer. Their teeth are white as birch, slow under black fringe of silent, accurate lips. The ewes are heavy with lamb. Snow lies bright on hedgehog and tacky mud about till, where the fells have stepped aside and the river praises itself. Silence by silence sits and then is diffused in now. And that theme of then is diffused in now, the, the present is past, the past is present, is very much a theme of the, the book and of, of the work. And, and one other short section. Brief words are hard to find, shapes to carve and discard. Bloodaxe, King of York, King of Dublin, King of Orkney. Take no notice of tears. Letter the stone to stand over love laid aside, lest insufferable happiness impede flight to Stainmore, to trace lark, mallet, becks, flocks, and axe knots. And that relates to the, the death of um, Eric Bloodaxe, the Viking king, a um, man who made many mistakes, ended up being murdered. That was the end of his kingdom. The English took over not long after that. And there's the figure of Bloodaxe in the poem, and there's also the figure of Cuthbert. And it's like two sides of the Northumbrian identity, two sides of how Bunting saw himself, the warlike side and the contemplative holy side that are in those two figures in the poem. Um, Kirst, can I ask you a question? We've said the Brig Flats, like much poetry, of course, is, is condensed. The words contain so much that when you put them into the water, <laughs> they unfold. <laughs> I wonder if you could tell us how your response to the poem has changed on subsequent readings. I think it, it's mellifluous. The first impact for me w was sonic. It's also the impression's so strong because he uses so many monosyllabic impressions. So you get this incredible crafting of the syllabic structure and a great deal of silence around that. Mm. So as a landscape, as a sonic landscape, you are literally walking, mm. you know, with your, the ear. And at the beginning, that, I think, resonated with me on a second reading, thinking about the sort of the, the Highland Gaelic death tradition in poetry where the monosyllabics are connected to the notion of earth being dropped on a grave. So again, you've got this sort of dispensing of sound. It's very tactile. But then again, revisiting it, thinking again around it for, for 
discussing it here, the visual kept coming through. And when I was reading about uh, his embedding of, of structures like the cross within, and, and again, returning to the Lindisfarne Gospels, thinking about perhaps Farsi, Persian indications, and that temporality that, that doesn't necessarily spiral, but it, it, it does have a circularity. Um, I was thinking about Jill Purse, you know, the great researcher into circles. These sorts of things started to become much more image-driven for me. And I felt uh, there was a tactile sense that was visual. That's fascinating. So there's a kind of um, development from the herd to the scene, to the touched, to the fascinating. It kind of floats, doesn't it? It floats yeah, so around. It, it floats, but it also activates you as a poem. It's incredibly performative, and he does this through mm. such skill, the, the, the um, phrasing and um, the extended vowels and the quantitative stress. He's working all of these elements together, so it's this enmeshed situation um, that gives you a, a profound sense of uh, the beat and you are activated by it as much as it activates you. Mm. Do you know there's a symbiosis mm -hmm. there? Mm -hmm. It's really powerful. Very raw, I think. We have to wind up in a minute. I would, but I would love to ask the same question to Neil because you've lived with this mm. poem. You built a life around this poem. It's not unreasonable to observe over 50 years. And I wonder how it's changed for you. Yes, in that time. I mean, in a sense, we're talking now about 50 years on. I mean, the poem is about remembering 50 years, but there's now nearly 50 years since yeah. since Brig Flats was first read by um, Basil Bunting in Morden Tower in 1965. I'm in an odd situation of sort of having a kind of proofreading relationship with it, with having mm. published it in different editions. Also, I've, I've heard him read it live three times. I've got the two recordings in my head. But certainly when I went back to it before our discussion, just the more I read it, the more I find in it, the more, I mean, um, Kirsten talked about phrasing. I mean, phrasing is, is a musical term also. And there's, there is that sense of him writing as, as a musician. You know, he was a musicologist. He did write about music, yes, music critic, for the London dailies. Yes. He made a disparaging comment about Vaughan Williams in relation to the lark rising that kept rising and, it was as though he was factually challenging the fact that the, the, the lark rose so long it would probably hit a satellite in the end. Not <laughs> factually <laughs> accurate. <laughs> he's, he's, he was very funny, on, 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 very witty in, in, in his music criticism, but, but he really knew his music inside out. And what would happen if one set this to music? Well, part of it has been set to music in that um, part of section four, he used to, you know, one of the, re the recording, we have, we're not going to hear it today, but one of the recordings, part of the poem he reads to Scarlatti's, Scarlatti's, Scarlatti's sonata in B minor. I think we will hear it. Which we'll hear a bit of that at the end. But, he, but when he actually reads it, he's reading it whilst, whilst, the sonata, well, whilst the Scarlatti is playing, and it's a kind of counterpoint. The two yes. weave in and out of each other. Yeah, okay. Thank you, is I think what we should say, first of all, to Neil and McGlivery for their stories and insights into this strange and brilliant poem, and to Nikki Birch, our producer, who wheels her microphone like a chisel, and to Alexis and all the wonderful team at the Woodstock Poetry Festival. Thank you.
If you want show notes with clips, links, and suggestions for further reading for this show and the 200 that we've already recorded, please visit our website at backlisted.fm. If you want to buy the books discussed, visit our shop at bookshop.org and choose Backlisted as your bookshop. And we're still available to hear from you on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Blue Sky, by postcards, <laughs> by skywriting, whatever way you want to reach us, you can. Yes, medium, that's fine. If you want to hear Backlisted early and ad-free, subscribe to our Patreon, sign up to our newsletter, www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. Finally, Kirsten, is there anything you would like to add on the subject of brick flats or basil bunting that we haven't already covered? Now is your time. Now is the time to come. The singer Stephen Duffy, once known as Stephen Tintin Duffy, who is a great poetry enthusiast, said the thing that always sticks with him about basil bunting is basil's ear hair, <laughs> which, which he grew proudly and uh, allowed to become luscious. And I think I think um, the slow worm is worth mentioning. Yes, the slow worm is a phenomenal creature. Uh, part well to to look at part snake, part lizard, but actually it has its own identity. And um, I think that uh, the slow worm embodies, to a certain extent, this transitional, complicated, um, unresolved, contradictory nature of experience, the experiential situation that Bunting had. And I saw one last summer for the first time. It was dead. I just finished editing my husband's manuscript where a slow worm features large as a central motif. And I went out for a walk and there was one lying in the road. I didn't know what it was. They're quite, they give off quite an aura so perhaps it was recently dead. But having seen that now, I understand the slow worm in his text, not as, because it's just shy of being a glow worm or something more benign, something more magical. It's actually really, uh, it, like everything else about the text, it's contained within the sphere of its own existence. It's a mystery, you know. It's a mystery. I yeah. like that too. The headstone and the mystery, thank you. Feathers so through the poem, the slow worm. Right, Neil, is there anything that we haven't covered, anything that you would like to add about Brick Flats or about Basil Bunting? I'd like to just read a couple of lines where he writes about Scarlatti, that we'll hear in a minute, because he's writing about Scarlatti, but he's also writing about his own work. As the player's breath warms the fipple, the tone clears. It is time to consider how Domenico Scarlatti condensed so much music into so few bars, with neither a crabbed turn or congested cadence, never a boast or a sea here, and stars and lakes echo him, and the copse drums out his measure. Snow peaks are lifted up in moonlight and twilight, and the sun rises on an acknowledged land. Thanks very much, everybody, and thank you to our lovely audience here at the Woodstock Poetry Festival, and um, we'll see you next time. And now we're going to leave you with another extended um, excerpt of Basil Bunting reading from the final section accompanied by the sonata in B minor, K87, by Scarlatti. Fairest things, stars, free of our humbug, 
each his own, the longer known, the more alone, wrapped in emphatic fire, roaring out to a black flue. Each spark trills on a tone beyond chronological compass, yet in a sextant's bubble, present and firm, places a surveyor's stone or steadies a tiller. Then is now, the star you steer by is gone, its tremulous thread spun in the hurricane, spider floss on my cheek, light from the zenith, spun when the slow worm lay in her lap fifty years ago. The sheets are gathered and bound, the volume indexed and shelved, dust on its marbled leaves, lofty an empty comb, silent but for bees, fingertips touched and were still fifty years ago. Sirius is too young to remember. Sirius glows in the wind. Sparks on ripples mark his line. Lures for spent fish. Fifty years a letter unanswered. A visit postponed for fifty years. She has been with me fifty years. Starlight quivers. I had day enough for love uninterrupted night. A strong song tows us long ears sick. Blind, we follow rain slant, spray flick to fields we do not know. Night float us, offshore wind, shout, ask the sea, what's lost, what's left, what horn sunk, what crown adrift. Where we are, who knows of kings who sup while day fails? Who, swinging his axe to fell kings, guesses where we go?